On this episode of the Random Thoughts Podcast, we pay homage to legendary SEAL Richard Marcinko. We talk about COVID-19 and where we're at today, as well as a gun law in Canada that's not really panning out. Turns out, people like guns and freedom. And welcome to episode number 168 of the Random Thoughts Podcast. That is R-A-N-D-U-M-B Thoughts.com online. I am your host, Darren O'Neill. And on today's show, we're going to be talking about Richard Marcinko. He passed away on Christmas Day at the age of 81. And the guy was a true American legend. Had a bunch of different nicknames. From Demo Dick, the Shark Man of the Delta, the Rogue Warrior. He was a guy that always led from the front, which is important in the military and also in life overall. He was one of the greatest counterterrorism experts that the United States has ever known. And I'm sure there are some people out there who may have never heard his name before. He Wrote a bunch of books, including an autobiography called The Rogue Warrior, which did so well that it spawned a series of fiction novels. And I always found his series of books to be quite entertaining. They turned me on to the lingo of a lot of the military stuff, you know, Fubar and Bohica, and a lot of things you can't say in front of polite company. And I believe I've read every one of his books. He is a guy for me. I mean, a lot of people like Stephen King, that kind of stuff. I was never big into novels, except the way that Demo Dick told a story was engaging. Knowing that he was a guy that came from the background that he did added not only a lot of realism to the story. But there was also that mystery of, well, is this story that is being told in fiction form, is that based on something real and where the names just changed to protect maybe the not so innocent? So the stories, I think, even took on a whole different level because of the background that Demo Dick had in the military. And I don't remember. If it was my brother-in-law, John, who passed away last month, that was the one to get me hooked on Demo Dick, but I think it was because I remember all of us, my sister, my wife, then girlfriend, going to get Demo Dick's autograph at a book signing. And I remember thinking, you know, this guy isn't as big and burly as I thought he might be, but he was a force. He was a big personality. And all of this stuff, I believe, around Demo Dick, all of these fantastic stories that he told just helped the legend grow. He was born in Pennsylvania. His father was from Herzegovina and his mother from Slovakia. He enlisted in the Navy in 1958 
after dropping out of high school. He completed underwater demolition training as an enlisted sailor before being commissioned via Officer Candidate School in 1965. And then, less than two years later, was deployed to Vietnam with SEAL Team 2. His exploits in Vietnam were so successful that the North Vietnamese Army actually placed a bounty on his head. Dead or alive, they wanted Demo Dick, but no, they did not get their man. For his second tour of duty in Vietnam, he led a SEAL platoon where he eventually earned the Silver Star and four Bronze Star medals with a Combat V for Valor, according to the Navy Museum. So he was a well-decorated guy, even early in his career. Now, where he really became famous was he was working in the Pentagon in 1979 when the Iran hostage crisis happened. He was one of two Navy representatives that was on a Joint Chiefs task force known as the TAT Terrorist Action Team. Sounds like a really great name, huh? The TAT. The purpose of the TAT was to develop a plan to free the American hostages held in Iran, which then culminated in Operation Eagle Claw. If you were around back then, and I was, you remember that Operation Eagle Claw did not do very well. It was a major failure of the Carter administration, and the hostages were then released the minute that Ronald Reagan took office, which I think said a whole lot about the state of the world at the time. But we knew at that point that maybe the United States was not quite prepared for this enemy. They were pretty much prepared for things like the Soviet Union and the Cold War, but when it came down to counterterrorism, they were not quite up to snuff. And after the massive failure that was the Iran hostage crisis, Richard Marcinko was chosen by the Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Thomas B. Hayward, to command a brand new dedicated counterterrorism unit for the Navy. Marcinko decided to call this SEAL Team 6, mainly to confuse the Soviet Union. He said, quote, we didn't have a 3, 4, or 5. I picked 6 as a lucky number. Let the Soviets figure out where the rest of them are. So right there, he's already playing the mind games, naming SEAL Team 6, SEAL Team 6, even though there was only two SEAL teams at the time, to give the illusion that the forces for the United States were more plentiful and more powerful, perhaps, than the enemies thought they were, which is really an important part of psychological operations, is you don't necessarily have to have the biggest stick. I mean, it's nice to have the biggest stick, but if the enemy thinks you have the biggest stick, that's almost as good as actually having the biggest stick. And Richard Marcinko knew that and acted accordingly. When it came to the newly formed SEAL Team 6, they trained and they trained a lot. It was rumored 
that they actually used more ammunition, SEAL Team 6 did, than the entire Marine Corps at the time. Which I can kind of believe that. As Marcinko was known to say, the more thou sweateth in training, the less thou bleedeth in combat. Training for these types of missions was very, very important. And he worked the men that served under him quite hard. Because of that, a junior officer, William McRaven, complained that Marcinko had trouble keeping the troops in line and that things were all going a little bit crazy with SEAL Team 6. And he was pushed out of the unit temporarily. He is now an admiral and he was in charge of leading SEAL Team 6 on the raid that eventually got Osama bin Laden in 2011. So the reason we have SEAL Team 6 now is because of Richard Marcinko. SEAL Team 6 was created as the unit he wanted in his image, the baddest of the bad, to do the things that nobody else could or wanted to do. Now, after his tenure at SEAL Team 6, which lasted three years, that's when he really started getting under some skin of people in the Navy because he was then chosen by Admiral James Lyons to head a group that was called Red Cell. And Red Cell existed for only one reason, and that was to test the security at military bases, intelligence sites, to determine just how prepared they were to handle things like terrorist threats. This was also happening without a lot of people in the Navy knowing what was going on because the orders went pretty much from the Admiral, James Lyons, directly to Marcinko because, you know, if somebody knows this stuff is going on, they're going to be on the lookout for it. So his team went out and videotaped all of this. There was a documentary that was put out about this, but they went out and created havoc for a lot of Navy bases, and people were not really happy with what he and his crew were able to do. They managed to plant bombs near Air Force One. At one point, they infiltrated a nuclear submarine base. They were able to pretty much get into places they weren't supposed to. And it was interesting watching some of this video again recently. It's on YouTube, the whole documentary. You can check that out. I'll put a link in the show notes. But a lot of what they did was during the brightness of day. They would just go over fences, go in, just go through gates with very little ID or the wrong ID because security is hard. Keeping people out of these locations is hard. It takes a lot of work and things fall through the cracks. And knowing the systems that were in place, Marcinko and his group of merry men were able to really piss off a bunch of Navy officers because then they were usually told the next day by Dick, who just would come into their office and say, Well, here's what happened last night, and here's proof, and here's why your security sucks, and here's what you can do to get better. And it turns out that a lot of Navy officers don't really like to be told how bad they're doing their job. 
But it was vital work that showed just how lax security could be in these allegedly secure areas, which no doubt ended up saving countless lives moving forward. Although now in this culture of wokeness, I wonder how much of this work is still being done because Red Cell was disbanded because maybe they went a little too far at times. Of course, when this all started out, the budget was bigger and they even had a lawyer that was with them at all times. And it turned out at one point they grabbed a security guard and kind of interrogated him a little bit too hard. And that, of course, made people upset, even though, I mean, they were pointing out the fact that this security guard, if he was actually grabbed by a terrorist, that maybe this was the weak link and people don't want to see the weak links, even though that is what they need to address to actually have the security be better. But I digress. If you're interested in such things, I would highly recommend reading Marcinko's books, both Rogue Warrior and Red Cell, which Red Cell is a fictionalized version, but I think there's enough truth in there. And it was a very interesting read how they did a lot of the stuff that they did. But after Red Cell, Marcinko retired from the Navy in 1989. In 1990, he was convicted of defrauding the government over contracts from hand grenades, served 15 months, but he would later tell CBS News that he believes he was singled out because Red Cell's exploits had embarrassed a lot of the top U.S. Navy officials, which I can see that. But throughout his career, Marcinko was awarded more than 30 medals and citations. He would go on to earn a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in international relations and political science, respectively. And his aforementioned autobiography, which was called Rogue Warrior, sold millions of copies. He then wrote 20 or so books, both on business, leadership. And his military fiction, he ran a private security firm, he hosted a radio talk show, served as a consultant on movies and television, including one of the seasons of the Fox hit show 24 with Kiefer Sutherland. The guy that was temporarily out of the unit because he complained, uh, now Admiral McRaven, said upon hearing of Richard Marcinko's death, quote, Dick Marcinko was one of the most colorful characters in naval special warfare history. While we had some disagreements when I was a younger officer, I always respected his boldness, his ingenuity, and his unrelenting drive for success. I hope he will be remembered for his numerous contributions to the SEAL community. Jim DeFelice, who was one of the guys that co authored, some of Marcinko's books with him said, quote, as far as I know, Dick and his warriors never traveled to hell itself. But if they had, I'm sure the devil would have found a place to hide rather than confront them. Dick's indomitable courage was legendary, but his sense of humor and his generosity were just as deep. He was a man who never took no for an answer or ever faced a challenge he would not master. We haven't just lost a warrior, we've lost a great man. Marcinko himself once said of death, the fear of death follows from the fear of life. A man who lives fully is prepared to die. 
at any time. Also saying, to the well-organized mind, death is but the next great adventure. So here's to hoping Demo Dick is on his next great adventure. And everybody, if you can, take a glass of Bombay Sapphire, Demo Dick's favorite beverage, which is mentioned multiple times in all of his books. But raise a glass of Bombay Sapphire to Demo Dick and toast the Rogue Warrior for all he did to make the rest of us safer. I hope everybody listening had a great Christmas. It was another strange one due to all of the COVID insanity going on. But as we talked about on the last episode, even though cases are going up, up and up, and we're seeing that today with record-setting cases, we are as of yet not seeing the following with hospitalizations and then deaths. It may still be a little early in the game to call this 100% win, but it seems like it is still pointing in that direction. San Francisco has had a large amount of the Omicron cases, and there are immunologists there saying the same thing, which is if this were the previous waves from the other variants, we would already be seeing the hospitalizations, which we are not seeing now. So even though cases are way up, and this seems to be a more transmissible variant of this contagion, it doesn't appear as of this point that it is more severe. It actually would appear that it is a less severe variant, but it's one you still have to be aware of. Understand that if you're around somebody that has this contagion, there's a much greater chance you're going to contract it yourself. And while a lot of people, up to 40%, they're saying, we may have talked about this on a previous show too, up to 40% will have no symptoms whatsoever. Those that do have symptoms can have them last for quite a long time. And there have been cases where people that eventually then passed away after hundreds of days of this, even with lesser symptoms, they found the virus in the heart muscle. They found the virus in the brain. And it's something that they're not really quite sure yet exactly why it affects some people in more severe ways than others. But in this case, this new variant appears to be a sign, a light at the end of the tunnel, perhaps that the whole COVID thing is going to start to wane and then just fade into being kind of what the flu is now, which will be a seasonal thing that you'll have to worry about. But as the symptom severeness goes down, of course, people will pay less and less attention to it. But this is just what viruses do. This seems to happen about every hundred years. And we just are fortunate enough to be able to experience this stuff firsthand. And I thought this was an interesting story as well. Up in Canada on May 1st, 2020, there was an order in council. So a law was passed that said, if you own any of these assault weapon style guns, that they had to be turned into the government. They were going to become illegal and you had to turn them in to the Canadian government by April of this year. Now, so far, all of Canada has turned in 160 guns. And that's going to make for a very interesting story 
come April to see exactly what Canada is going to do about this on uh, whether they're actually going to start going after people for guns that were purchased completely legally. And then the law changed this two year amnesty period. They believed that there's approximately 72,000 gun owners and about 105,000 firearms that should be recalled by this policy. So yeah, 105,000 firearms and so far 160 have gotten into the hands of the Canadian government. This doesn't seem like it's going to work out very well, which is also the problem in any free country as we have in the United States where you'd be like, oh, no, we could recall these guns and get them back. No, no, you cannot. You cannot. People are not going to willingly just go, hey, we're going to give you our guns. In America, especially because, you know, we have that pesky amendment that says you have the right to bear arms. The reality of this is when people talk about this kind of stuff, like Mayor Lightfoot here in Chicago, that, oh, it's the guns coming in from Indiana. Not so much. Enforce the laws when people use guns to break the law, but they don't want to do that. That's it's a system that is just so screwed up. It's kind of hard to comprehend, but for everybody here in the United States that thinks you could just go, hey, let's just make these guns illegal and make people turn them in. Look at what's going on in Canada and realize that's just not going to work. And then ask yourself, how are you going to enforce these laws? What are you really going to do if these folks don't turn these guns in? Are you going to start going door to door? Are you going to start pounding doors down? You're going to start going after people. You're going to start arresting people because they didn't willingly turn over their firearms to you, even though they haven't committed a crime with the firearm. It's just, well, now it's a crime to have the firearm. It's a big mess. It is a big mess. And what people don't understand is freedoms come with some responsibility. Not everything always works out. People get caught in the crossfire when all sorts of different things happen. And that's just part of life. In Canada, I will applaud these folks for not rushing to turn their weapons in. Will that change as the time comes down? As we get closer to April, we'll have to watch and see. I have a feeling that the COVID lockdowns and all of the insanity that's gone on over the last two years is making people less likely to comply with governmental orders that continue to take the freedoms that people have and strip them away. Maybe I'm wrong, but it'll be interesting to watch. And I do have a couple of people to thank for supporting the Random Thoughts podcast here today on the last episode of 2021. And they are my buddy Chutakuki coming in with his monthly $15 donation. And that is very much appreciated. And our buddy Ryan Bemrose of the Angry Tech News Podcast. You may have heard him on a show called Grumpy Old Ben's, but you can hear him now at angrytechnews.com. He comes in with 10 bucks. It is very much appreciated, as is every donation that has come in throughout 2021 to help us keep the lights on, help us keep the microphone sounding good. 
you know, the web servers up and all the things that are associated with keeping a podcast going. All the support we have gotten is very much appreciated. And this is a value for value podcast, which means we put these shows out there. They're not behind a paywall or anything. You get to decide if you've gotten any value out of what you've heard here. And if that answer is yes, you can go over to randomthoughts.com slash donate. Click that donate button to do a one-time or monthly donation via PayPal. Use one of the QR codes or wallet addresses for a crypto donation. Or you can use the P.O. Box address to go any other type of thing that you can send via the U.S. Postal Service. Just know that it may take like 14, 15 years for it to get here because they're slowing stuff down. But all of the support that people have shown is very much appreciated, as is everybody who has taken the time to listen to these episodes. Hopefully you get something out of them and hopefully you had a great Christmas and we'll have a better 2022. I think we said that about 2021 and it's been another interesting year. Hopefully next year will be better. At least maybe less drama filled. That would be nice. With that said, I will be back next Wednesday for the first episode of 2022. Until then, I am Darren O'Neill. Thanks for listening. 